Welcome to episode three of my mini plant-based Kickstarter podcast series. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Will Cole. He is a leading functional medicine practitioner and recently named in the top 50 in the United States. He's a doctor of natural medicine and a doctor of chiropractic. He now specializes in chronic disease and customizing health programs for thyroid issues, autoimmune conditions, hormonal dysfunctions, digestive disorders, and brain problems. He works with individuals all around the world. He is author of Ketotarian, Intuitive Fasting, and Inflammation Spectrum. In this discussion with Dr. Will Cole, he shares the benefits of a whole food, plant-based diet that also prioritizes the inclusion of anti-inflammatory fats. You will learn why becoming fat adapted is such an important decision for your hormonal health and metabolic health, as well as the foods and lifestyle practices that will help you to get there, including intermittent fasting. Dr. Cole's knowledge bank is seemingly limitless, and I cannot wait for you to listen to this discussion. Hi, Dr. Cole. So excited to have this conversation with you today. Hi, I am very excited as well. Thank you for having me. Not a problem at all. I um, I've I followed you, you know, for probably two so two or so years ago. Now I heard you on a podcast speaking. I really resonated with your story. You know, you sort of described how you went plant based. You or you were purely plant based for ten years. Fell in a bit of a hole, and were following a very traditional plant based diet. And then you found this world of lower carbohydrate nutrition and and now you've you've sort of married the two when I don't know too much about the ins and outs of your current diet but I presume it's still somewhere along the lines of very much plant-based with with a lower carbohydrate take on it so excited to have this conversation and thank you again for joining for thank you so much for the sake of our listeners do you want to perhaps give some background on you you know you're very well educated you've got many different uh, doctorates on your name, but maybe give some background to the listeners on you. Sure. So I am a functional medicine practitioner. So my my day job, um, my passion, my focus is uh, we started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over 12 years ago. So for the past over a decade, I've been consulting people via webcam. So from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., that's what I'm doing throughout the week. and um, kind of immerse myself in complex cases. Mm. We deal a lot with autoimmune issues, people with different types of autoimmune issues, people with chronic fatigue issues, hormonal problems, um, digestive issues, and brain health issues too. So anxiety, depression, brain fog, those type of things. Mm. And then obviously, as you know, this the interconnectedness of those things. Because somebody with one area problem, it's a ripple effect cascade for many people where they're having complex. Com- um, a myriad of different uh, interconnected things there. So that's my main focus. Uh, uh, so I write about this stuff as well because of this, I, what, I, what I do during the day. So it's easy to not shut up about it <laughs> and how to utilize these things in your life. So the book that you're referencing is Ketotarian, which is a mostly plant-based ketogenic way of eating, um, yeah. uh, clean keto. And then the second book is The Inflammation Spectrum, which is really an exploration of my clinical practice and a functional medicine perspective on inflammation and what that looks like. Yeah. And my newest book is called Intuitive Fasting, which is really a part two of Ketotarian in many ways, where it's it's taking Ketotarian to the next level with 
with intermittent fasting and to further that fat adaptation and a cyclical ketotarian approach, which is what I typically do. You ask like what I do currently. Mm-hmm. It is a cyclical ketotarian, which I guess we could talk about today. But pairing that with time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting is how I uh, maintain metabolic flexibility and the benefits for long-term sustainable. And I find that most people do well with that approach as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I won't go into metabolic flexibility or ask you specifically about that only because we've discussed it in other sort of episodes in this little series. But I do want to get your perspective on why perhaps a more traditional uh, plant-based diet, and I say traditional, I don't even know if there is like a traditional, but there's either the plant-based diet that's just you know, a version of the standard Western diet without meat in it. <laughs> um, or there's the plant-based diet that is very high in grains, starches, to the detriment of including quality fats in the diet. Mm-hmm. Um, can you please, you know, from your perspective, describe, I guess, some of the downsides, the potential risks of either of those versions of mm-hmm. a plant-based diet? Yeah, sure. Very good, good question. So we have two main fuels, right? We have sugar and fat, and you may have covered this in different episodes, but from my perspective, from a functional medicine perspective, uh, sugar burning is like kindling on, on a fire. If that fire is your energy levels and flame, then you have dirty kindling, which is the standard Western diet. And even if that's a more dirty plant-based diet where it's a lot of refined carbohydrates, it's a lot of vegan treats and sweets and a lot of uh, stuff that is vegan or plant-based, but it's still very, uh, it's it's dirty kindling. It's going to create that sugar burst of sugar energy, but it's going to be short-lived. So you have to keep putting kindling on the fire. But then you have the cleaner kindling of a whole foods plant-based diet that is like you said, depending on grains and legumes and starches and fruits and smoothies and all that stuff. Uh, It is cleaner, but it's still kindling nonetheless. So Mm -hmm. it's, you're still going to be in that kindling. I need to have this all day long to maintain my energy. uh, If you're in that state, there's a time and place for clean kindling. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But, and look, some people need less of it. Some people need more of it, but but it's a tool to consider. It's a tool to use somehow in your life. The problem is when you're only stuck in that sugar burning kindling mode, it's not a real, you're not going to feel good long-term. Most people won't. They'll be better off, but just because something's better doesn't mean it's optimal. You'll be better off than the standard Western diet, certainly, but it's certainly not going to be as optimal as you can. So that's why I wrote, ketotarian and now an intuitive fasting is to educate people. You don't have to abandon being plant-based or mostly plant-based is how I advocate it. Mm -hmm. You don't have to abandon that. You can really leverage the amazing benefits of being mostly plant-based, but still be fat adapted. And it's not an either or it's a both end and uh, healthy fats are actually really needed. And fat for fuel is the other alternative for burning from a metabolic standpoint. So I want people to put the work in from, for, from a health journey standpoint to put that log on the fire of healthy fats, to be more sustainably burning, to get throughout the day, to get off of that blood sugar roller coaster, to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, kill the hangry dragon that many people find themselves up against. Mm, Uh, They can have food peace, really. Um, So that's the goal. Um, But you have to put the work in. But it's not that you don't have to, you don't have to give up being mostly plant-based. You really could still do both. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and from much, you know, you said many things there, many benefits of including the fats and being able to burn the fat for fuel. From my perspective, you know, as a female, I, I went plant-based. I was actually living in the USA at the time and I was just so bewildered by the, the animal, um, like animal production or animal protein production in the US. I was just like, no, nah, I'm checking out. Like I don't want exposure to those hormones and, mm-hmm. um, and antibiotics. Um, so I, I went exclusively plant-based and then, you know, my period went missing, you know, I lost my menstrual cycle after, you know, a few, a few months of it. And it wasn't until I discovered lower carbohydrate, healthy fat approach to a plant-based diet that I actually started to get my hormones back online and, and started to get my period back. And this is why I'm so passionate about, um, I guess, breaking down some of those those um, misconceptions around including fats in a plant-based diet. Mm-hmm. Why, why have fats been demonized for so long, you know, in general, but in the plant-based community as well, there is a lot of demonization mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. fats, both, you know, saturated fats and even, you know, omega-3 fatty acids and omega-6s. Yeah. But yeah, what are your, what's your perspective there? It's multifaceted for sure. And like mm. just knowing friends and colleagues of mine that still fall under that paradigm, um, it's very nuanced and people have that opinion for different reasons. Yeah. But it's really down to the diet heart hypothesis. It's down to the fact that fats, even the I mean, like like you said, most people will get behind the fact that monounsaturated fats like extra virgin olive oil and omega fats and um, avocados and avocado oil, most people will say that's okay. Uh, but even that, not just okay, I should say, most people will say those, fa- those, ha- those fats are healthy, eat, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, they'll eat them and think that humans should eat more of them, right? Most people, you get behind that. You're going to offend less people by saying that. But still, it's interesting the people that are in the plant-based community that will say even that should be looked at as being a potential problem because those fats mm-hmm. are not necessarily good. So this low-fat plant-based zealot sort of approach is, is very interesting, but it's down to that whole diet heart hypothesis really is that all fats, of course, the saturated fats, they would say like the dairy butters, the, of course, coconut uh, any oil. animal. Yeah. But yeah, even the <laughs> plant-based uh, coconut oil and, mm. and coconut cream and all that stuff uh, could potentially raise cholesterol and raising cholesterol is therefore equated with bad. But now, that's a very oversimplistic reductionist perspective on cholesterol. Because about half of people who have heart attacks and strokes actually have normal to low cholesterol. So it's super simplistic to say, oh, total cholesterol, anything that raises that, that's bad. Mm. Well, Mm. it may be true. I mean, but context matters because it's like flipping a coin. So we have to look at better predictors of assessing cardiovascular risks. So that is not total cholesterol by itself, which is like flipping a coin, but what's the quality of that cholesterol? So one of the labs that I run for patients is called a nuclear magnetic resonance or NMR test. It's looking at the subfractionation of particles that carry cholesterol, which are basically the protein carriers that are at least protein rafts that carry cholesterol around and small dense ldl particles are like little oxidized inflamed rusted bb bullets that can they're inflamed they're oxidized 
they can tear through arterial walls potentially, and they're, they're a sign of increased risk of heart attacks and strokes. Not good. They're mm-hmm. actually protein, not cholesterol. Uh, and But we can measure the quality of these uh, on an NMR test. So we want these large buoyant LDL particles. These are like fluffy, buoyant, like cotton balls. Mm-hmm. They're protective. So these protein carriers, these protein carriers of cholesterol, we want the fluffy cotton balls or pattern A on the NMR test and not pattern B, which are the oxidized BB bullets. So these protein carriers are better predictors, but they're not cholesterol. They're the protein carriers of them. So it's not the cholesterol. It's the oxidation or the inflammation of the particles that carry cholesterol. That's the problem. It's the inflammation. And then we can measure other inflammatory proteins like C-reactive protein, homocysteine. We want HSCRP in functional medicine to be under one. Above that, it's a sign of inflammation. We want homocysteine to be under seven. uh, Or below uh, or between... Do you sort of look yeah. at between five and seven? Yes, five and seven would be yeah. fine. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then ferritin is another biomarker we want to look at because high ferritin can be a sign as of inflammation. It's considered an acute phase reactant. Um, and then we want to look at glucose A1C, of course. We want those to be normal. We want glucose to be under 90, A1C to be under 5.4 or so. Yeah. We want triglycerides to be under 100. These are all U.S reference ranges and um, of course you can yeah. yeah anyways so any the point is it's way more complex than just seeing cholesterol up a little bit and saying well that's bad and anything that raises that is bad because researchers actually show that these healthy fats including the healthy saturated fats actually improve large buoyant LDL, the fluffiness of the cholesterol particles, it improves HDL or good cholesterol. It's improving all the good biomarkers. Yeah. There's some exceptions to that rule, like APOE gene variants. There's, there's some people that should have less less saturated fats, certainly. Mm-hmm. There's genetic variants and gut issues. There are caveats. But again, context matters. Instead of making broad sweeping, overgeneralized statements, for people, to be honest with you, that largely don't look at labs. They're not looking at people's health. They're just pontificating their opinions yeah. and pulling some study to prove their point. Yeah, uh, It's really not helpful. Yeah. And so like you just mentioned like eight different markers that you would assess before looking at total cholesterol. And I'm exactly the same in clinic. It's looking at triglycerides, TC to HDL, homocysteine, CRP, all of these things that need to be taken into consideration as a marker of risk of, you know, cardiovascular disease, metabolic conditions. And a lot of the, I guess, the research I see around the the low-fat, high-carbohydrate plant-based diet is really dialing dialing in on that total cholesterol and using that as a predictor of risk. And it's like, oh, can we please yeah. stop that? <laughs> Let's right. find some research that looks beyond that. Totally, because you th- then they consider that a success. Oh, cholesterol is lower. That's awesome. But then look at Look at the C-reactive protein levels of some of these people. Look at homocysteine levels in some of these people that yeah. are low fat. Especially yeah, you can B12, see you B12, low B12 levels. Like, let's yes, look at their homocysteine. High, yeah, you will see high homocysteine in these low fat people. You'll see high C-reactive protein. You'll see low HCL. You'll see, uh, and you'll see pattern B because the liver is stressed out. Not everybody, but the point mm-hmm. is you cannot just overgeneralize it and say that's good or bad. Because you have to look at all these variables and put that in context with the person. Yeah. Okay. So if we're looking at a plant-based diet that is lower in carbohydrate than the standard 
Western diet or the sad American Australian diet, and we're looking at a um, plant-based diet that's lower in carbohydrate than that whole food, plant-based, low-fat diet. Um, what sorts of things do we see on the on this sort of plate? You know, on this lower mm-hmm. carb, high, higher fat, healthy fat plant-based plate, what are sort of top of the lists of the things that you would want to see on that sort of plate? Sure. So that is the ketotarian triangle that I talk about in ketotarian and the and intuitive fast and intuitive fasting, my newest book Mm -hmm. is because I want people to focus on these mostly plant-based, either vegan keto, vegetarian keto, or pescatarian keto, or what I call vegetarian in the book. So basically Vegan keto, healthy fats are things like avocados, avocado oil, olives, extra virgin olive oil, soaked nuts and seeds that make them more digestible, Mm. coconut cream, coconut milk, those sort of things. Those are all the vegan keto, completely plant-based healthy fats. Um, And then the vegetarian uh, fats are going to be things like organic pasture-raised eggs with the egg yolks filled with choline, good for your brain and your hormones. Um, and ghee, clarified butter with its fat-soluble vitamins and healthy fats too. So that's the vegetarian keto fats and ketotarian. And then the pescatarian would be wild-caught fish, fresh seafood, things like that, but still predominantly plant-centric. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, from there, clean protein. Um, you can, a variety of those fats also have protein in them too, like yeah. the nuts and seeds and the fish and the eggs, but also other vegetables like lots of greens, uh, non-starchy vegetables, lots of sulfur-rich vegetables, which support methylation and detox pathways like asparagus and Brussels sprouts and onions and garlic and that type of thing. Mm. And then low fructose fruits are at the top of the ketotarian tri- triangle. So those are things like berries and citrus fruits and things like that. That's yeah. the foundation, the ketotarian like plate, as it were. Yeah. But then there's room and there's a flexibility for a cyclical ketotarian approach, which again, like I mentioned, it, there's a time and place for that clean kindling. So mm-hmm. things like more fruits or starches like sweet potatoes or rice can be used strategically. I mean, you mentioned women and, and this lifestyle and the, the dynamic cycle of estrogen and progesterone if you're menstruating. There's a time and place for the cleaner kindling to support progesterone levels, to support the thyroid conversion of T4 to T3. So you can actually leverage the benefits of clean carbohydrates around your cycle or around a heavy workout, or just because you want more variety and more flexibility. So that's what I, that's really the nuance and the context mm. that I'm exploring in intuitive fasting. Because it's not, again, it's not either or, it's yeah. both and. And you have these tribal wars within wellness, which is so funny, right? We're talking about health and wellness, and then we have yeah. to fight about this stuff. It's yeah, so funny. We all want the same end goal, right? <laughs> it's so weird. It's, we're not talking about war and peace and like some governmental thing. This is like getting people healthy. We should be having civilized conversations about this. And giving people options in a way that's the realistic and sustainable. But anyways, there is a place for both of those things. And um, I find that many people do better with, with tapping into these things uh, in a way that works for their body and not just mm-hmm. saying, well, that's bad. And that's, you get that a lot with the keto community or the low carb, high fat community unintentionally, maybe, but there's a lot of shaming that goes on and saying, well, you, anything that could be out of ketosis is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Like how, and then they end up fearing vegetables. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fearing, I mean, and God forbid a smoothie. It's like that it's creating this 
unintended consequences, these the sort of orthorexia and disordered eating mm. around healthy foods that I think is really counterproductive yeah. and more than counterproductive, it can be a saboteur to somebody's healthy relationship with their body and healthy relationship with food. And impact their gut as well. And yeah, Exactly. And From a gut yeah. microbiome diversity standpoint too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I find for a lot of my clients that are already plant-based that come and see me, um, not even necessarily having to go down super, like super low in terms of the carbohydrate spectrum, but even just working in and around sort of 100 to 150 grams of carbohydrates per day, which allows lots of space for legumes and yes some carbohydrates and I work with a lot of females so I don't want to go too low anyway but I find even that helps to get those those uh, those preliminary benefits of a lower carbohydrate diet, right? Like the, the sustained energy levels or the stabilized energy levels, the stable mood, um, the stable appetite, stabilizing weight, like all of these things can come about. You don't have to go down like this super low end of, of carbohydrate intake. You just need to take away the, um, like you said, look at that pyramid and take away the priority on the plate. Like the carbs can't be the priority on the plate. Mm -hmm. What's your, what's your perspective on um, tempeh or fermented uh, tofu or soy products? Is that, is that something that you would put in, put in the, put in the diet of an otherwise healthy individual? Yeah, I would. It's it's in the, on the ketotarian triangle, specifically for people that are predominantly or exclusively plant-based. They aren't maybe not having eggs or they're not having wild cut fish. Uh, we need uh, essential amino acids. We need mm -hmm. a complete protein, uh, meaning you can get a variety of different essential amino acids from other foods, but tempeh and natto from organic non-GMO, these are fermented sources of soybeans, mm. I think it's a good choice. So yeah, if it's an otherwise healthy individual, then it's a fine choice to make. And I think it should be considered if somebody is uh, not having things like eggs or wild caught fish or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of those who perhaps might not be suited to having a lot of those foods, um, would you say those with specific thyroid conditions or hormone associated conditions, what would be your little caveats to people including those foods on a, um, you know, somewhat daily basis? Yeah. I mean, the, the concerns I guess would be the fact that they could, they're considered quartogenic or estrogenic, um, meaning they could impact your thyroid or impact uh, estrogen levels. I really, unless somebody's having copious amounts of these foods, yeah. and I really don't see that being a problem. I really yeah. don't. The problem that I think more than anything could happen is somebody that has some like moderate to severe lectin sensitivity. I think that could be a problematic because you have a food that's a little bit higher than lectins than mm. you know vegetables are and healthy fats like olives and avocado and those type of foods. And even that is dramatically abated because of the fermentation process. So yeah. even that is so negligible that I think that it's actually very tolerable for most people. Yeah. Fermented okay. soy is. Yeah. And yeah, because there's a very big difference between having some, you know, fermented soy or tempeh in a stir fry versus having a soy protein isolate smoothie for breakfast and then a soy based keto yeah. bar for afternoon tea and then, you know, some sort of soy based cheese melted on your sweet potato. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a very big difference. Then. Exactly. So that by itself, and people don't necessarily like 
they're just not having lots and lots and lots of it. I guess if somebody is having lots and lots, I just haven't seen it. I guess tempeh and natto tends to be self-regulating in and of itself. It's something you use, something you have on a consistent basis, but it's not something that I've seen people like overdosing on. Yeah. Twice a day type thing. Yeah. 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 Um, so like the lower carbohydrate plate, we've got a, a good understanding of your perspective of, of what that looks like for the sake of helping to, you know, improve, improve appetite control, blood sugars, and then the inflammation that comes along with, with those things or the improvement in inflammation that comes along with those things. Um, you've written your latest book, which is on intermittent fasting. That's another strategy that can be used to help with the fat burning, right? Like to help with being able to burn those, those bigger logs on the fire. Oh my goodness. Yes. So especially for somebody that is not restricting carbohydrates as much, right? Because we like fiber and a more plant-based approach. Fiber is good for your gut microbiome. And there's exceptions to what I just said, but basically you, for long-term health, you want to have a variety of good fiber for your microbiome to make short-chain fatty acids, which interestingly enough, butyrate, one of the short-chain fatty acids is has a lot of the same benefits as beta-hydroxybutyrate, the ketone. Mm. But your body makes it endogenously through fermenting fibers in the gut microbiome. So for many reasons, and it's good for satiety and curbing cravings and all that stuff that fiber is appropriate. But it also, for some people that are more carb-sensitive, even the clean carbohydrates, can lower ketone production. So I know that it's not all or nothing. And I, I do agree with your point that just staying in that 100 to 150 grams of carbohydrates, still you're going to get amazing benefits there. But if somebody wants to lean into ketosis a bit more, uh, a great way to do that is time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting. So you don't necessarily have to restrict your carbohydrates. You're just being very specific and strategizing when you are eating that clean ketotarian mm. diet, and then you are creating ketones uh, when you are fasting. So I, that's why I created intuitive fasting. So as the book title's name implies, intuitive fasting, yeah. I want people to be led from a place of intuition. Now, look, if somebody is in the sugar burning, kindling on the fire state, that's easier said than done. And it sounds exactly. nice for Instagram, but it's like not going to be doable. So intuitive fasting is the goal, but not necessarily when someone's coming into it. Because when you're in the throes of imbalance, hormone imbalance, when you're in the throes of insatiable cravings, when you're in the throes of hangriness, talk about intuition. Because is it intuition or is it hangry? Is, is, yeah, yeah. Is the chocolate's talking or, to me though. I'm getting this intuition yeah. that the chocolate I'm craving that it. donut. It's yeah. my intuition, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, stress eating is not intuitive eating. Insatiable cravings is not intuitive eating. So you have to gain metabolic flexibility to mm. create a soundness and a stillness to actually hear that resolute, still small voice of your intuition. So we, that's the goal. We have to get there. Yeah. Intermittent fasting and a clean ketotarian diet are two tools to gain a metabolic flexibility. But I, I, that's why I take people through this four-week flexible fasting plan that ebb and flows, fasting and eating windows, vacillates them to have that sort of proverbial yoga class for your metabolism. Because you should go I love that fasting. statement, by the way. I've never heard it described as something like that before. A yoga class for your metabolism. That's I think awesome. about these things too often. Mm. But it's like when you get like the super deep, like stretch that's super difficult, there's a time and place for that. And does that mean like the first yoga class that somebody takes or the first gym 
like, oh my gosh, this is super difficult. Or, oh my gosh, I'm super sore from this. It's not for me. Well, yeah. actually, no. That's Go like back saying, and do, do it more. <laughs> yeah, do it yeah. more. Actually, you need to train your metabolism to get there. Someone's mm-hmm. sore after the gym. It doesn't mean working out's not for them. Otherwise, nobody would work, would work out. It's, it's actually good. But you have to build a mitochondrial ability to burn fat for fuel. You can put kindling back on the fire too. So the ebbing and flowing, the vacillating macro variations and the eating window variations is actually super important to amplify this lifestyle, amplify feeling great. So we start off with a lighter fast and we get the deeper fast and back, back, back out. And I want people to cycle through this four-week plan in the book as many times as they need. Yeah. Because what? if someone's super metabolically rigid, it's going to take more than four weeks to get there. They put oh. the work in. Yeah, definitely. Like, ab- absolutely. And I think almost yeah. people putting pressure on themselves to, you know, they hear about fasting. I get asked about fasting every time I do a, pub- a you know, a public presentation. Um, it's, it's always a question. Uh, people hear about it and they just want to dive straight in the deep end. Like I'm going to do 16 hours, seven days a week, and uh, it doesn't necessarily work for them. So I think having like guidance, you know, mm-hmm. over a sustained period of time and knowing that you don't have to, to be this warrior faster straight away is a good thing. Like take pressure off people. But um, absolutely. What is, where do you start with in your protocol? What sort of length fast are we talking about when people mm-hmm. commence for the first time? So week one is a body reset fast. So it's a quite a simple one. So I'm marrying a ketotarian diet, like I mentioned earlier, which is mm. fasting mimicking. It's mimicking a lot of the benefits of fasting because we're less than 50 grams of carbohydrates. It's a little bit lower carb um, to get some ketosis going. And people can mm. find their carb sweet spots. Some people have to go lower for a time. Yeah. This isn't forever and ever, but for a time to get more fat adapted earlier on. Uh, then marrying that clean keto approach uh, with a 12-12 fasting to eating window. So it's like eating between 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. It's very Which, simple. Like if you can't do that, <laughs> like, you know, alarm bells should be going yeah. off. I know, right? <laughs> Not to but put anyone from, down who's in that place because, you know, for some people. But it's, it's growing in mindfulness. You can do it. Anybody can do it. Yeah. yeah. But it's just a matter of the realizing that that late night snacking uh, isn't ideal or eating mm. too late isn't ideal. Yeah. So it's we're doing that for a week. You're ge- leaning in. It's the body reset fast, what I call it that. So it's not like super deep, but it's just yeah. something to lean people into it. And then week two goes into about an 18-hour fast. So it's mm-hmm. a metabolic recharge fast. So that's a little bit deeper, yeah. but it's a 12 to 6. Let's, this is an example, like what I do most weeks consulting patients. I'm eating between 12 and 6 p.m. So I'm fasting after 6 p.m. all the way through the night while I'm sleeping and, and then all the way till lunch the next day breaking my fast at lunchtime. So that's where, and then I'm showing every week the research in the scientific journals about like for what week one, what it's doing for the gut microbiome, the reset there, because the microbiome has its own circadian rhythm, super fascinating. Week two, metabolic recharge, we're working on insulin resistance and lowered inflammation and the cardiometabolic pathways. Week three is the deepest fast. So that's an mm-hmm. almost OMAD approach. OMAD is an acronym that you know this, but for people that don't know, it's one meal a day. So it's a, but I call it an almost OMAD approach in the book because I want people to try to get two meals in the window because okay. there's a 
pathway called the PKR pathway that people trying to get so many calories in in a tighter window, if it's not the right foods, especially, it can raise what's known in the research as metaflammation, which is just systemic inflammation. I don't want that. So I want a gentle break a fast meal, which is a lot of soups and broth, something gentle to lean yeah. segue your body out of that deeper fast. And then uh, you can have your normal meal and maybe a snack in like a two hour window. So it's a 20 to 22 uh, hour fast. So okay. a, either a four to two hour eating window yeah. uh, as it were. So you can fit that any, you know, whatever you want it, whether that be breakfast, lunch, or dinner, have that eating window for the week three. That's the cellular renewal fast. We're working on autophagy, deeper ketosis, stem cell activation, longevity pathways, but we're doing that almost OMAD fast in week three every other day. So you're not doing okay. it every day. Okay. So I want people to still have that refeeding time after the deeper fasts. And then week four, we're back to the 12-12, but we're increasing clean carb cycling to what you were just said, 175 to 150 grams of carbs. So we're putting that kindling back on the fire. We're still relative to the average Australian and American. We're still lower carb, yeah. Um, yeah. but it's a lot more carbs than you had been having. So it's still in the low carb to moderate carb range. Yeah, I love the sound of that. I actually think um, anyone who starts plant-based Kickstarter would feed on really nicely into that protocol. Yeah, they could do that afterwards. Yeah, they'd start to get some really great appetite control during Kickstarter and then they'd find your your fasting protocol a lot easier. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that'd be a, a nice transition for people. For sure. Uh <laughs> I'm just thinking my, like I'm just sidetracked. So I'm thinking myself like, oh, have I tried one meal a day every second day for a week <laughs> period? Have and, you done it? Have you done it? Maybe. Um, the, I mean, I usually follow a 16-8. So I would usually do a 16-hour fast um, with an mm -hmm. eight-hour eating window. It depends on my training. So um, I've sort of been coming back from injury over the last six months. So I've had to start mm -hmm. breaking that fast earlier on those days. And that works mm -hmm. for me. Like, yeah. you know, I pretty much, you know, fasted when I was young, like it just naturally, it was intuitive for me, you know, mm -hmm. to delay my breakfast. And so it meant that I was intuitively probably always doing like a 12, 14 hour fast, yeah. you know, through my twenties. Um, mm -hmm. the most significant I've done is a two and a half day water fast. That was Love like that. me and my partner, just like, come on, we can do it mainly for <laughs> the experience than anything yeah. else. But, um, no, I've never done I, one meal a day, every second day for an extended period of time. So I want people to learn like through doing this, if you do one cycle of the four weeks and maybe another cycle, if you do two or three cycles, you know this, but people are going to grow in awareness in their body. They're, they're going to gain metabolic flexibility. Mm. They're going to start feeling better. They're going to start achieving their health goals, but they're going to start growing in intuition. They're going to start knowing like you, Oh, like I feel better at the 16, eight, they're going to find their sweet spot. And then you can go and do more of that. So it's not set in stone. I want this to be intuitive and be flexible. But again, we're, we're kind of in a way beyond building metabolic flexibility with that proverbial yoga class for your metabolism. Yeah. We're also sampling different eating windows. Yeah. So you can learn, oh, some people do better with this type of fast. Some people do this. It's okay. We're all created differently. And this is yeah. the heart of functional medicine. 
it's bio-individuality. We're all different. So some people do better and they love the OMADs more often. Some people do better with the 16-8. Some people do better with the 12-12. It's okay. But you have to lean in and experiment these things to do your own N of one experiment for yourself to see where you feel the best. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's really the reason I loved your, um, your yoga class analogy is because there's such this movement around intuitive eating right I guess on the other side there's this movement of people thinking they have to fast and do harder better uh this sort of that mentality but you know yoga is all about us being able to listen to our body you know breathe deeply feel the feel that the areas of your body that you wouldn't usually feel and tap into and so that's what that's what through eating you know, a, a good diet and through getting blood sugar control, it, well, it's what allows you to feel that fear appetite. You know, it's what allows appetite hormones to regulate other hormones like insulin to regulate. And in doing that, you can actually listen to your body's natural cues of hunger and satisfaction and fullness, which a lot of people just haven't felt ever or for a very long period of time. Yeah, absolutely. It's our birthright. I talk about in the book how Look, because of food availability or because of intentionally humans would have just like through ceremonial or spiritual reasons or just humans weren't so excessive with food either. Even if it was available, there was a little bit more of a sacred relationship with food. There are genetics haven't changed in 10,000 years, but yet our world has changed very dramatically in a very short period of time, which this is what researchers are exploring of what's been triggering these, these genetic predispositions for autoimmunity or mental health issues or metabolic issues, the genetics have always been there. The potential for genetic predispositions have always been there, but are, they're being awoken like never before in human history because of this genetic epigenetic mismatch or this evolutionary mismatch. So it's our birthright. Tapping into this stuff is our birthright. Paracelsus, one of the fathers of modern medicine, people know about Hippocrates, right? Because he's the father of modern medicine. Every doctor in the States, I don't know if doctors everywhere, but doctors in the States take the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. But he, Paracelsus was another doctor in the late 1400s, early 1500s in Switzerland. He was known as the father of toxicology. And he was also known as the Martin Luther of medicine, which I think is kind of interesting, like this reformer of medicine, like Martin Luther did for Christianity. But he called fasting the physician within. And I think that that is a powerful statement. It's this physician within, like you said, maybe they've never tapped into this ever in their life because they've been eating this, this modern mismatched food with their genetics since they were little babies, mm. that they really can uh, awaken and tap into this physician within so their body can repair itself. And the healing me mechanisms that are at play when you dive into these times of fasting and times of cleaner ketogenic or lower carb approach it's powerful. It's really powerful. We could go from head to toe and talk about the pathways and the science behind how your body's healing, but it's pretty astounding. Yeah. And I'm going to really encourage people to, to get a copy of both Keto Terry and your later, and your later book, because that's where people will be able to see the, the head to toe benefits of, mm -hmm. of achieving this. Um, it would be remiss of me to not ask you just a couple of questions um, specifically with re relating to a plant-based diet. I guess I just want to get your perspective on what are some of the, the, the nutrients that we need to be most conscious of. I don't want to say concerned <laughs> about because I don't want people to be scared of their plant-based diet, um, but what are the nutrients that we need to be no most considerate of in 
you know, taking on a plant-based approach to nutrition. Uh, nutrients they want to be focusing on or nutrients? Mm. Uh, yeah, is that what you mean? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, B vitamins are certainly important. Um, methylated B vitamins. Um, so you can get them for a wide variety of different plant foods, certainly vegetables and fruits um, would be fi fine, uh, good. Um, and, you know, that, I think that if someone's strictly vegan, uh, low carb or mm -hmm. vegan keto, um, there's a whole section in Ketotarian about supplements to consider because there are is bioavailability um, and getting ample amounts for some people that you may want to consider supplementing with these things. So mm. um, consider a methylated B vitamin if you don't bring in things like eggs, egg yolks, or wild-caught fish. Um, but that doesn't mean that everybody has to. That I'm saying that it's a personal choice and some people because of ethical reasons or they just feel better or religious reasons or preference, whatever. So you can just supplement accordingly or maybe you don't don't even need to supplement because your body can handle uh and getting enough from foods but some people have different genetic variants that make their body not so good at activating certain things like the mthfr gene variant or other methylation gene variants or other vitamin gene variants that can mm -hmm. slow the conversion or the activation the bioavailability of certain nutrients so b vitamins vitamin a is another one so true vitamin a for retinol mm. is only found in um, animal foods like egg yolks and wild caught fish. You can get beta carotene in plant-based foods, but the conversion of beta carotene to retinol or true vitamin A isn't the best in some people. Some people are fine and they'll notice no negative things. Their labs are fine. They feel fine being completely plant-based certainly, mm. but we're all different. And this going back to that bio-individuality statement that I mentioned earlier, some people would, it would behoove them to either consider bringing in foods that have true vitamin A in it or supplement with it. Mm -hmm. And we live in such an awesome time where you can supplement with these things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, using food as medicine, my, this is my primary goal there. If you can't use food as medicine, is that diet the most optimal for you. So that's why I use the word mostly plant-based because I think you can be mostly plant-based and strategize with certain things. But still, let's just say, be, mo be completely plant-based and either consider bringing these few foods in or supplement. Um, the next thing I would say would be uh, vitamin K2. Vitamin K2, you can get through natto, that fermented uh, non-GMO soy, which I love yeah. that. Um, and your gut converts K1 to K2 through fermenting uh, K1 in the gut. So you're going to get some that way. But ample amounts of K2, which is another fat-soluble vitamin like vitamin A, predominantly is from things like ghee or um, like uh, even organ meats too, which is, is, is not part of ketotarian, but that's mm -hmm. another food source of that too. Um, I guess cod liver oil would be one source of that, cod liver, which yeah. would be a pescatarian option there. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so those would, that would be the uh, top ones I could think of. Yeah. Um, iron, active iron would be another one, making sure that you're getting the true ample amounts of iron. You can get it through green leafy vegetables. You can get it through beets. You can get it through green juices and things like that. But ample amounts of iron sometimes, iron deficiency is really common with people that are strictly plant-based. So mm. consider that. I see low ferritin. And for female hormone health, I want ferritin to be around uh, 80, um, not too high because that could be a sign of inflammation, but yeah. not too low either. It's about balance. Um, and uh, one other one would be um, 
you know, those would be the top ones. I'm, try, I'm trying to think of any other ones. Mm-hmm. That would be the most common ones. Vitamin D, which is hard to get through food anyways, but it has nothing to do with being plant-based. You're going to get some from ghee and some from the wild-caught fish, but you're really going to supplement or you know, be in the sun all day long. And, yeah. and most people, it's not really realistic with their jobs. But yeah. we, want, we want vitamin D to about be 60 to 80 in uh, functional medicine range. Yeah. And for people listening, I'll put the conversions in the notes. So if they're yeah, Aussie-based, then they'll see the conversion. Yeah. But I, don't, I, I can't do them quickly off the top of my head. So I'll No, I'll we, for all in international notes. patients, we do all the conversions, but I do not know them off my hand. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. No, there are some handy tools to do, to do yeah, the conversions. Exactly. Um, what about B12 specifically? Because that's, that's a B vitamin that's in a purely plant-based diet is not really going to be obtained unless you're looking at something that's fortified with B12, like a nutritional yeast, for example. But mm-hmm. I don't really ever recommend that as being your, your sole, sole source of B12 if you're somebody that's going to follow a plant-based diet for an extended mm-hmm. period of time. So I personally do usually recommend a B12 supplement. Um, what are your thoughts on the the type of B12 that's used? And this is just like I find this a really interesting area at the moment looking at the, you know, the methylcobalamin versus the hydroxocobalamin. What are your thoughts on the most appropriate B12 to be using if you don't yet have any genetic information? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. That's, a, that's the one thought. Because certain <laughs> people have MTHFR or MTRR or MTR, these other methylation gene variants that we do look at with patients from their raw genetic data that some people uh, do better with certain kinds, whether they be the methyl or the cyano, um, uh, the different types of the B12. Anyways, so um, I generally find that people do better with the methylcobalamin. Mm-hmm. If you're just saying generally, I find that I'll proper dose, there's a thing, is that sometimes too high B12 is a problem and methyl mm-hmm. will cause like a anxiety and yeah. increased symptoms and they'll over-methylate potentially, yes. But it may just be the dosage, not the form. So sometimes consider going down because remember, we're getting B12 from food too. So uh, depending on what they're eating. So sometimes you, it's not just the dosage of the supplement. It's taken into consideration of what they're eating as well because they're also getting that endogenously or they're getting it from food as well. So yes, that's definitely something that should be supplemented. You can get B, some form of B12 in chlorella yeah. and spirulina, but chlorella seems to have different forms of the B12 that's more bioavailable, interestingly enough, versus the, the um, spirulina. Yeah. But both those algaes can be decent sources of B vitamins. But supplementation beyond that, if they're strictly vegan, low-carb or vegan keto is not a bad idea to consider. Yeah, yeah, ongoing, especially if they if they're yeah. going to follow the plant based diet for a long, long period term. of time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and it's usually after being plant based for a, a year or two years where you know your B twelve stores will start to start to dwindle, and then that's when you think, oh, you know, this plant based doesn't feel so good anymore. And right, that's when you really need to start paying attention to what's going on under the surface. Yeah, I always. I always recommend if anyone's going to take on a plant-based diet for the first time, or if they haven't done it before, that they always get some labs done. So they at least have an understanding of where things like their ferritin are at and inflammatory markers like homocysteine and CRP. And of course, B12 levels, understand where they're at before you make a massive change to your diet. Yeah. It's a good to look at the baseline and you can Mm. compare and contrast that over time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
What are your thoughts on essential fatty acids on a, let's say, purely plant-based diet where there might not be eggs or butter or ghee coming through or fish coming through? Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think that an EPA DHA supplement is necessary or is it more specific to the, 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 the life stage? It could be. I wouldn't say necessarily necessary because some people can do the conversion. Their body's converting enough of those shorter chain omega fats from plant-based sources like chias, chia seed or chia, chia seed, uh, like a flaxseed, flaxseed oil, those type of plant-based uh, nut and seed oils, um, depending on how much they're having, how much nutrient intentionality they're doing. And from a mm. plant-based standpoint, they may not need to have an extra supplement. Uh, but like you said, it's the longer term decision makers that I would be more concerned with. Because like, like if you're just doing this intermittently or if you're doing a mostly plant-based approach, you're probably going to get it from other sources too. And then some people are better converters of the shorter chain omega fats mm-hmm. into the longer chain. Some people aren't so good, especially if their gut's not so healthy, just like with the vitamin A conversion or the vitamin K1 to K2 conversion, or the iron conversion. It's also the conversion of these omega fats into the more bioavailable sources. So the the algaes are something that I mentioned earlier that also mm. better sources of these long chain um, omega fats. Uh, so that's something to consider if someone's longer term being strict plant-based to get the bioavailable forms of the omega fats, not just the flaxseed oil or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And the poor converters, they're going to be people with digestive health challenges or issues, mm-hmm. inflammation. Would that be yeah. a, a... Yeah. Poor, poor gut there? health, chronic inflammation, people with autoimmunity, people somewhere on this autoimmune inflammation spectrum mm-hmm. that their body either genetically, they have genetic SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphism gene variants that aren't that so good at converting them or their gut's just not good at absorbing nutrients. Yeah. So it's either a genetic or a microbiome issue that I find that people need to be a little bit more intentional with either supplementing or considering bringing other foods into their diet to use food as medicine more bioavailably. Yeah, yeah. And look, I, I'm with you. I think food should be the food should be the foundation. Like food should be what we use to maintain our health, if not improve our health. And supplements should really just be the adjunct. And I ideally don't supplement blindly. Ideally, mm-hmm. work with a health professional who can help you to mm-hmm. understand, you know, what your supplement requirements are. Because a, I hate people wasting money, and B, I don't want people to over supplement, under supplement, or assume that something's going on when, in actual fact, there's something else going on that they need to supplement <laughs> for. So totally true. I mean, we—it's totally true. I mean, people. Are, have the, what we call supplement graveyards where they're just these massive like drawers of supplements, which can be fun. I mean, some people, it's their hobby, right? But it's like, really, what's what's the most, we want these things to be effective. Yeah. And we, if we're going to spend our money on something, let it be let it be a needle mover. Let it be something that's actually clinically appropriate or going to better your life in some way. And so many people are shooting in the dark thinking they're doing the right thing because of some fancy like marketing campaign. Mm-hmm. But is it the right thing? Is it something you're going to stick with? Is it something you even need? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I could keep like chewing your ear off for a whole other day, um, but I won't. (laughs) I'll let you go and have some time with your family or whoever you're hanging out with tonight. Um, Thank you so much for joining. Uh, Can you you let people know where they can find you and Mm -hmm. where they can learn more from you? 
Thank you so much for having me. Uh, everything's at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. They can check out the our telehealth functional medicine center there. Uh, lots of free content. They can order intuitive fasting there as well. So all that, all that stuff is at drwillcole.com. Awesome. So good. Thanks, Dr. Will. Thank you.